All right. Thank you, Rolly. Thank you, everyone. Um, well, let me get set up here for a minute. As I'm doing this, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 18. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone on our team should come around and make sure you have one of those. And while you're finding that, let's begin with this. In the last, uh, I'm going to move this out of the way a little bit. Over the last 10 years, I mean, really any period of history has, you know, big turmoil and controversy. There's been, I think, our fair share of turmoil and controversy in our world in the last decade. But one of, the, one of my favorite controversies that's kind of been roiling underneath the surface for a while is the great battle waging over the word literally. And if you know what I'm talking about? This is where, uh, you know, we say things like, I am literally going to die if I do not get a taco. By the way, free student lunch today, we have enchiladas and uh, just really, really good food. So if you are, uh, um, if you feel like you're literally going to die without lunch, come join us today at free, uh, free student lunch. Whether you're undergrad, grad, we'd love to have you be a part of that. Um, quick plug for free student lunch. All right, we have turned the word literally literally into the word figuratively. And so if you go online and you do some reading about this, there is so much angst about our misuse of the word literally out there in the world. People will point to this and say, oh man, this is a, a sign of our declining educational system. Or this is yet another way in which social media and the digital age are ruining people's minds. Or this is another example of how millennials have ruined the world, right? There's just all, <laughs> there's just all of this frustration about how people use the word literally. This is my favorite thing, though. This is from uh, uh, the Urban Dictionary. Literally. A word with no meaning in today's USA. <laughs> uh, literally the funniest thing ever. Now, easy to poke fun of, I, I think, and probably for good reason, especially if you're a word nerd like me, you can get up in arms about this kind of stuff. Um, but I want to defend the misuse of the word literally just for a moment, because what are we doing with this? We are uh, we're using exaggeration. And exaggeration can actually be an incredibly effective tool of communication if used sparingly and wisely. If you use it too much, of course, you become the boy who cried wolf and people will tune you out and not take you seriously anymore. But again, used well, exaggeration can go a long way towards making a strong point. It works in comedy. It works in rallying people to a cause. It works in motivation. And today, in this section that we're going to look at in Matthew, as we wrap up another movement within the book, we're going to see Jesus use exaggeration to great effect. Now, if you've been with us, you know that this is a long journey through Matthew, and we're, we're, we're moving through it in, in, in sections or, or movements. This is the end of movement five. We've been calling this movement a new community because Jesus in these chapters, he's been laying out the foundation for what this new community he calls the church is going to look like. Telling his disciples, this is what it's going to be. This is what I'm inviting you into. This is what you are going to go and build. And so in today's big teaching, Jesus is going to show us a couple of things that are really important about God's heart, but then also about how we live together, how we live into this kingdom of right relationships, as we've been calling it, how we live together in the church. 
So Matthew, we're looking at verses 1 through 35. This is the fourth of five big teaching sections. Matthew structures his writing around these larger uh, discourses, as some scholars call them. Uh, a reflection of, of Matthew's care for his Jewish audience. This Jewish audience would have been very familiar with the Old Testament, with the Torah, the five books of the law. And so this is a reflection of him connecting to his audience. All right, this section begins with a very strange question, at least a, a question that's strange to our ears. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is what Roly just did a few moments ago, right? <laughs> Such an awkward question. <laughs> now, for us, this is the kind of thing that outside of Roly here on Sunday morning, we don't usually ask this kind of question, right? We might be thinking it in our minds. Who's the most important person in this room? Or who's the most important person in this group? But it's not, uh, it's not a good idea for us to necessarily ask this question out loud. And so we're, we come to this with, I think, a sense of like, what are the disciples doing here? Why are they asking Jesus this question, do they want him to power rank them like 1 through 12? Here, here's where you guys stand. Is this question born out of some uh, frustration or resentment? What's going on here? Mark and Luke place this question in the context of an argument that the disciples are having with each other about who's the greatest. That's also kind of an awkward thing, right? To actually have that debate amongst yourselves, which of us is the most awesome. And so it's kind of difficult to look at this with a sense of the disciples, you know, like what are they doing? You can't really spin this to make them look good. But there are a couple of things that we need to keep in mind here. All right, the first is this. The disciples lived in an honor-shame culture. And so the social hierarchy, where you stood in relationship to other people, who had the most honor, all that kind of stuff really mattered to them. They cared about who was the greatest, and they weren't necessarily afraid to ask that kind of question. Second, we need to remember that for several chapters now, for us, several weeks as we've been moving our way through Matthew, Jesus has been systematically dismantling all of their expectations that they had for the Messiah and for the kingdom. Remember, the Messiah was this long sought after figure, this political figure, a king, a savior who would come and who would restore the kingdom of Israel. He would kick out the Romans or, or whoever the evil empire of the day was, restore the kingdom to greatness, and then usher in this, uh, this era of peace and justice. And again, for several weeks now, Jesus has been saying, no, it's not going to be like that. This kingdom is going to be big, way bigger than Israel. This kingdom is going to be for everyone. And this kingdom is not going to come through military conquest or a political maneuvering. It's going to come through sacrifice. It's going to come through giving up power. It's going to come through my death. Jesus has told his disciples a couple of times now. And so the disciples are still working this out. They have all of the right information, but it hasn't fully sunk in yet. Their, their hearts and their minds haven't caught up with the information. They are in a process just like us. We don't get some big new information and automatically click over into a new reality. That may happen occasionally, but for the most part, it takes some time for that new reality to begin to set in. My whole life, the story of our family was that we were French. 
My last name, Boutry, is a, a French last name, and the story was that my great-grandfather, after World War I, moved from France over to Canada and then eventually made his way to Seattle, which is where my grandfather was born. Well, a couple of years ago, my grandfather passed away, and since then, as you know, we've, the family's gone through some of the, the records, we've discovered that we're actually from Belgium. And so there's been this, this mindset shift of, oh, I'm not French, I'm, I'm like, is it Belgian? I don't even know what you call yourself when you're from Belgium. This really came, this is a silly story, but this came to a head for me last year during the World Cup, okay? My whole life, I, I've rooted for France, and, and I loved the 1998 team that won the World Cup. Zinedine Zidane is my favorite player of all time. I loved their 2006 team, and I was really excited about the, the 2018 team. I thought they were going to be really good. And then I, then I discovered, oh, I'm not supposed to root for this team. I'm supposed to root for Belgium. And then they play each other in the semifinals of the World Cup to see who goes to the finals to actually win this thing. And so I'm watching this game, and I'm like, okay, I have to root for Belgium. These are my people. I need to cheer them on. But as the game's going and France is winning, I'm like, oh, this is great. France is, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm from Belgium. <laughs> right? It takes time for our hearts and our minds to catch up with reality. And this is the process the disciples are in right now. They have all the correct information. It just hasn't sunk in for them yet. And so they continue to operate at times out of these old ways, out of this old reality. And here's another one of those examples. Now, Jesus, um, sometimes he's quite patient with them. And then other times he just like keeps turning the amp up to 11. And so here's an example of where he just keeps coming at them. He brings a child to him, places the child among them. Here's how he answers this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This is what Jesus says it means to be great in his kingdom. Now again, we need some context work here because for us in Davis, this doesn't really sound all that radical. We revere, and I think in some instances, even idolize kids. We talk about what a great place this is to raise children, and it's safe, and we have good schools, and teams, and programs, all of this stuff. And so for us, Jesus' words kind of make sense. Yeah, of course, be like, like children are awesome. But for the disciples, this was, this was like, what is he talking about now? Children were on the same level, status-wise, sociologically speaking, as slaves. They were property. They had no important status in that culture at all. And even if you bring that into today, children are still dependent, needy, and vulnerable. This is a radical redefinition of what it means to be great. Become like a child, Jesus says. Now there are two aspects of greatness that he points out here. The first is changing or turning. And in the Greek, this is the same word as repent. To turn, to repent, to, to pick a new direction and become like a child. Not childish, childlike which is to humble ourselves, to admit our lack of greatness, to admit our need and our dependency on other people or on something bigger and greater than us. And then the second aspect that Jesus names here is greatness is also welcoming 
children, welcoming childlike people in Jesus' name. Become like a child and then help other people recognize their childlikeness. That is what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Admit your need for Jesus and join Jesus in his welcoming mission. Now, we move to the middle section. A lot going on in here as well. And this is where we really see Jesus ramp up the exaggeration. And Jesus uses exaggeration here in this section to make a couple of really critical points. So first, Jesus uses exaggeration to reveal part of God's heart. Jesus says God is like a shepherd who would leave his whole flock to go find one lost sheep. This is an exaggerated point. Of course God cares about the other 99. Of course the shepherd cares about the other 99. But again, Jesus revealing God's heart here. And the key line comes in verse 14. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones, and that's a phrase you'll need to remember here for a few moments, little ones should perish. What is God's heart? It's for people. He does not want people to perish. He does not want people to be lost. God deeply desires to extend us mercy. And so he goes after us. He goes looking for what is lost. And the greatest example we have of this is Jesus. Jesus is God's definitive statement, I am for you. I am looking for you. This is my mission, to be in relationship with you. And so I am sending my son on this mission to find what I've lost. So exaggeration to reveal God's heart, and then Jesus uses exaggeration to warn his disciples against the dangers of undermining his mission. God is merciful, but there are definitely consequences for impeding his mission. And in verse 6, we see a very key shift in language. Jesus moves from talking about children, the Greek word is tekron, not a part of the gasoline you buy at Chevron. To this word micron, little ones. Okay, so this is a broader term referring to anyone in a given society who is weak or powerless. Again, this is Jesus' mission. To go after the lost, to bring in the outsider, to welcome the little ones. The vulnerable ones, the dependent ones, the needy ones. And to do that, it involves removing obstacles so that people can enter. And so if you are placing obstacles in people's way, of course this would be a big problem. If the mission is to remove obstacles and you're creating obstacles, you are in conflict with what Jesus wants to do. This is, uh, this is why Jesus has such harsh words for Peter back in Matthew chapter 16. Do you remember that scene where Jesus begins to explain, I, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And this is, this is how this thing is going to go down. And Peter says, no, I will never let that happen to you. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter is hindering. He's creating an obstacle to Jesus' mission. In this section, Jesus goes on to use, again, a lot of exaggeration. He talks about millstones being hung around people's necks and thrown into the sea and cutting off limbs. All of it is not to be taken literally, but to make a point. Getting in the way of Jesus' mission has dire consequences. And it raises a really hard but important question for us. In what ways do I, in what ways do we impede God's mission? In what ways do we cause microns, little ones, 
to stumble. Now, there's probably a long list of things that that we could name here if we were really being honest, but I want us to talk about what Jesus names explicitly in this discourse and what he spends the most time unpacking for us. We impede the mission when we allow our relational dysfunction to consume our time and energy. We waste so much time on, on arguments and spats and disagreements, while at the same time there are so many people who desperately need good news. All around us, all the time, and we're arguing about, you know, whatever. Now, Jesus here gives us a a plan of action. Jesus is not normally one to give a formula or a kind of a step-by-step process, but here he actually does when it comes to this issue of Uh, relational conflict and the ways in which we can undermine his mission by getting sideways with each other. Look at what Jesus says. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that phrase is a reference to uh, a passage in Deuteronomy. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay, a couple of things that we need to unpack here from this process that Jesus lays out. First of all, he realizes that there's always going to be stuff that comes between us. We're sinful people and we're going to hurt each other. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to break relationship with each other. And so again, this is a process that can lead us towards healing. And and it's a very simple process. It begins with just go right to that person and talk about it. If you feel, man, I think I might have messed that up, go talk to them. If, If someone has hurt you, go talk to them about it. Now, this is totally unscientific, but in my experience, nine times out of ten, this works. The misunderstanding is cleared up, the relationship is restored, and we can get back to the work of the mission that Jesus has called us to. The unfortunate reality is we almost always skip this step. <laughs> right? We go, we talk to somebody else, we, we vent, we, we simmer on it, we stew in it, when we should be going straight to that person and clearing it up. Now, a quick tangent for just a moment, all right? How many of you are familiar with this concept of a life verse? Not very many of us. That's great, actually. <laughs> a life verse is this thing that, that Christians do where they pick like one verse out of the Bible and that sort of becomes their, their mantra. All right, Steph Curry, his mantra, uh, uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Hopefully that um, gives him strength to make some more three-pointers today in game two. All right. Uh, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a life verse. Okay? I want to share with you guys this morning my life verse. It's from Acts 21, 38, and it goes like this. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? All right? That's my life verse. Now, a little bit of context here, okay? This question is asked of a guy named Paul. Paul's one of the key leaders of the early church, and this comes at a point in Paul's story where he's, he's getting a lot of new churches started and it's causing controversy in different towns and there's rumors swirling all around him. And so this soldier comes up and asks Paul this question, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? 
And as a leader, as someone who's in the, in the public a lot, out in front, what happens a lot is people will talk about you behind your back. And then you'll hear things about what you do and say. And it's like, oh, I had no idea. <laughs> now, let me be very clear here. This has not happened at Discovery. So I'm not pointing fingers at anybody or rebuking anybody. But there's something about Paul being asked this question that just speaks to me in a very deep way. All right? The whole point of this conversation is to say this. When we don't go and talk to people directly, we end up in some very strange places. Right? Aren't you the Egyptian that led that revolt with 4,000 people out of the wilderness? Why? Because people didn't go and directly talk to Paul about what he was doing. If something is between you and another person, go talk to them about it. When we go in other places and let that energy dissipate out into other things, it can get really weird. So go and talk to them directly. And then Jesus says, if that doesn't work, bring in someone else. And if that doesn't work, bring in some more people, especially wise people. And if that doesn't work, then it's probably time to move on. And we need to talk about this also for just a moment, all right? Verse 17, Jesus says, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. I think there's two ways that we need to look at that phrase. One is this. Jesus here is recognizing that we do need to have boundaries. The kingdom of heaven is welcoming and inclusive, but not every behavior is good or should be tolerated. So we need to have some boundaries. When sin is named and confronted, it does open the door to healing and reconciliation, but reconciliation is not a road that everybody is willing to walk down. Some people will not want to go there with you. And in those cases, it's okay, once you've given it your best shot and brought some other people into it, it's okay to move on. It's good to have boundaries. However, this needs to be tempered with the reality, who does Jesus pursue? And who does Jesus spend the most time with? Pagans and tax collectors. And so if this is who Jesus spends time with, and this is who Jesus goes after, that should inform how we treat people, right? God's heart, again, is that none should perish. It is for mercy and forgiveness. It is that at some point there would be repentance and reconciliation. So reconciliation is always the goal. It's not always possible. Which is why what Jesus has to say next becomes so important, the story that we'll look at here in just a moment. Forgiveness is always possible. You may not be able to walk that road towards reconciliation, but you can always forgive someone, even if they don't want to go there with you. And here's the truth. You will never be free until you forgive them. Now, one more thought here. I think this is also very interesting. Jesus ends this section by stating that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there with them. And this is a verse that comes up a lot at prayer gatherings and in small groups. And that's good. There's truth to, you know, when we get together, Jesus is with us. But notice the context where he says this. It's in this process of seeking reconciliation. The good news here is that when we follow this process, when we are working through this together, Jesus is there with us. In that place of seeking reconciliation together, his power and presence moving us towards forgiveness. 
And this really becomes the theme of the final section of this discourse. And an interesting thing happens here as we get to the end of this teaching. Jesus, for the first time in Matthew, mentions God's anger. And so as we look at this, I want you to have that question in the back of your mind. What makes God angry? So the discourse gets interrupted by none other than Peter, who asks a question. This one's actually a fairly good question. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, as Jesus gives us more insight into how the kingdom works, how we're supposed to work together as a community, the natural question is, well, how far do we go with this? When do I know that I've done my part, that I've done my duty in seeking forgiveness and reconciliation? In Peter's mind, seven was a good number. It was more than twice of what was required by the law. And you can imagine Peter feeling pretty good about himself right now. Like, seven, that's a good number. I'll, I'll, I'll throw that in there. That'll make me look pretty good. And once again, Jesus just blows the whole thing up. He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven. Either way, Jesus' point is just keep doing it. Keep forgiving. And then he goes into this, this story, this very, uh, in some ways, funny and in other ways, very disturbing story. This is a story about a king or a master who wants to settle accounts with his servants. One of the servants owes the master 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents. Now, in that day, a talent was the largest unit of currency and 10,000 was the largest number in the Greek language. So Jesus picks literally the largest debt imaginable. Like a hundred gazillion dollars. And then, and then he, I love this, he uses some understatement. <clears throat> he was not able to pay. <laughs> so what does the servant do? He starts begging, right? I, like, spare me, show me some mercy, give me a little bit more time to try to pay this back. This debt that is so so big that this guy's never going to be able to pay this thing back. Just give me a little bit more time. And the big twist is the king cancels the debt and lets the guy go free. There's no payment plan. No, okay, I'll give you three more months to try to figure this out. It's just gone. Incredible mercy. Now, the guy leaves and immediately bumps into a co-servant who happens to owe him some money. Jesus says 100 silver coins. This is a vastly smaller number than the 10,000 bags of gold that he talked about earlier. So the guy who had 10 gazillion dollars of debt forgiven is now going to make a big deal about a 20. All right, this is the kind of exaggeration Jesus is using in this story to make a point. Uh, the servant has his, his, his co-servant thrown in jail, shows him no mercy, but unfortunately... There are some others who see this whole thing go down and they go and tell on him to the master. The master calls the servant in and says, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And here it comes. In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now there's some harsh words there, right? 
But again, the question we entered into here with is what makes God angry? What causes Jesus to pull out some of the most exaggerated teaching he uses in the entire book of Matthew? It's a lack of mercy. It's a heart that is not willing to forgive. To refuse to forgive is to refuse the good news that we have been forgiven. To withhold mercy from fellow microns is antithetical to the good news about Jesus. It just doesn't make sense. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Why does God cancel our debt? It is because he does not want any of us to perish. It's because of his great mercy. Jesus says earlier in Matthew, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. There's this connection between our experience of God's forgiveness and our ability to extend forgiveness to each other. One of the clearest ways to know that we are following in the ways of Jesus is when we show mercy to each other. And one of the ways that we know we're struggling is when we are unable to do this. If there's a place where, where you're having a hard time extending forgiveness or mercy, there should be some alarm bells going off. We're moving into dangerous territory. Again, we'll never be free until we can forgive. Now, God's anger and judgment of the merciless, I think, raise a, a number of important questions for us. First, have we received his mercy? Not because we were righteous, right? He saved us because of his mercy for us? Have we received that gift? Have we turned, repented, and become like children? And then are we extending that mercy to others? Important questions for us to sit with. Now I want to introduce you to Brian Stevenson. This is one of my new heroes in life. Brian has been working for years on criminal justice reform through his organization called the Equal Justice Initiative. And he wrote a fantastic book a couple of years ago called Just Mercy. And he tells all kinds of amazing stories in this book. One of my favorite, though, is about a man named Avery. Avery's father died two months before he was born, and his mother died a year after he was born. So Avery was raised in the foster system in Alabama. He was abused and traumatized very early on in that experience. His story in that care system is terrible. And the trauma and abuse that he experienced as a small child stunted his physical and intellectual growth. And then as a teenager, some of that started to manifest in different behavioral issues. And the family that he was placed with was totally unequipped to handle that. They got so frustrated with him, they took him out into the woods and tied him to a tree and left him there. And by the grace of God, he was found three days later by some hunters um, that helped save his life. But when he was 18 and graduated out of the system, he became homeless. And some of his mental health issues exacerbated. And at age 20, he murdered someone who he thought was a demon attacking him. And when Brian Stevenson says things like, America's prisons have become warehouses for the mentally ill, this is the type of person that he's talking about. Avery. Brian began meeting with Avery when he heard about his case to get to know him better and to see if there was anything that he could do 
to help. And every time they would show up, the beginning of their interaction would be very agitated. Avery would be very upset when they came into the room. And the thing that Avery really wanted was a chocolate milkshake. And he would be really upset, Mr. Brian, why didn't you bring me a chocolate milkshake? And Brian would try to explain, well, they don't let me bring anything in, and this is the prison and kind of how it works. And he discovered that if he was able to say, I'm sorry that I didn't bring you a milkshake, but I'll try to bring you one next time, Avery would calm down, and then they'd be able to have a conversation about his case. So they developed this little ritual over time. Meanwhile, at the same time, every time that Brian would show up at the prison, he, w- he was confronted in the parking lot by this truck that was um, just loaded with uh, uh, bumper stickers and other sorts of propaganda that made it very clear Brian was not welcomed in this place. Turns out that this truck belonged to one of the prison guards. The guard did not like Brian, put him through a strip search every time that he came to visit, and then would often make him waste his time uh, on tedious paperwork and other kind of things that had nothing to do with the normal procedure. In fact, he told Brian the first time he came, when you come into my prison, you do whatever I tell you to do. Now, eventually, Brian's able to bring Avery's case up for review. Avery's mental illness was never a factor in the original trial. So for three days, Brian lays out all the facts of the case, all all these documented instances of abuse and neglect, the impact that that has on the brain, especially a developing brain. And it turns out that this guard who was antagonizing Brian was tasked with bringing Avery uh, from the prison to the courthouse every day and then had to sit there with him during all of these proceedings. Now, when it was all through, Brian was concerned about how Avery would be handling, you know, having to sit through all of that. So he goes to visit him the next day. And when he shows up, he sees the truck in the parking lot, and he gets prepared for the whole deal, starts taking his belt off, all this stuff, as he comes into the prison. But he's greeted at the door by the guard. And this time, the guard has a friendly smile, and he shakes his hand and says, oh, no, no, you don't have to do any of that stuff today, Mr. Stevenson. Come on in. Brian writes, I was confused by the shift in attitude. But I took advantage of it, headed towards the visitation room. But as I was making my way in, the man placed his hand on my shoulder and said, hey, I need to tell you something. So Brian pauses to listen to this story that the guard tells him. For the last three days, the guard says, I've been sitting in that that room listening to what you had to say. And I want you to know that I appreciate what you are doing. It was difficult for me to be in there and to hear all of that. I came up in the foster care system too, you know. I don't think anybody had it as bad as me. They moved me around a lot like I wasn't wanted nowhere. And then he says, my whole life I've been angry. And and sitting there listening to that for three days, I, I realize I'm still really angry. There was one expert doctor you put up on the stand that said that some of the damage that's done to kids in these abusive homes is permanent. Uh, That kind of made me worried. Do you think that's true? Brian says, well, I think we can always do better. The bad things that happen to us don't define us. It's important sometimes that people understand where we are coming from, though. And the guard says, I appreciate you saying that to me. It means a lot. At first, I did not understand why you are always talking about mercy. I wasn't sure what you meant by that. But now I do. Then the guard said, 
I did something I probably wasn't supposed to do, but I really want you to know about it. And Brian says, oh, I got nervous at that point. <laughs> and guard says, on the trip yesterday, I know how Avery is, so I pulled off the interstate, and I took him to a Wendy's, and I bought him a chocolate milkshake. When Avery arrived in the room, Brian was prepared for the usual ritual that they would go through, but he noticed that Avery was much more calm. Avery interrupted the little ritual by touching Brian on his hand and saying, it's okay, Mr. Brian. I got my milkshake. I'm okay now. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy changes people. God's mercy transforms our hearts. And when we extend that mercy to others, it can change everything. Everything for us and everything for the person receiving mercy. In Micah we read, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and then watch this. You will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. What ends up in the depths of the sea? Not people with millstones around their necks. Our sin. Our debt. And God's passion for us, for his little ones, he goes to these great lengths to get us back through Jesus. He offers us mercy and forgiveness. And his desire when we receive that is to join him in his mission of showing that mercy to others. So again, have you received the gift of his mercy, God's forgiveness, his canceling of your debt? Is that experience of God's mercy beginning to change your heart? Is it changing the way that you see and view and interact with other people? And then is there something that you've been holding on to that you need to let go of? A resentment, a hurt that you need to be free from. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Receiving and extending mercy. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is when we know we are following in the ways of Jesus. This is what it means to build the kingdom of right relationships. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful this morning that you have canceled our debt. That you have thrown it into the depths of the sea. God, for, for some of us, there is a hard-heartedness. There, is a, there are ways in which our heart have not, has not caught up to the truth yet. And so I pray that you would continue to soften us towards that, towards receiving the mercy and the forgiveness that you have extended to us. May that become more real in our lives than at any other point. If we need to accept that gift for the first time, may we do that with open hands today, if we need to be reminded of the great lengths that you have gone to forgive us and to show us this mercy, would you remind us of that this morning? And then God, for those who are struggling, and it is a real struggle to forgive, 
Would you help us to take a step in that direction today? To let go of that anger, to, to allow that bitterness to be softened just a little bit, to open up the door towards forgiveness so that we can be free. Free to, to be whole again and free to welcome the little ones in your name. This is our prayer this morning, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.